Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Andras Neumann. Andras is a writer. His most recent book is Fracture, and he joins us from his home in Granada in Spain. Welcome to the show, Andras. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. How is life in Granada? Um, contradictory, yeah. I would say, because as you, as you know, it's a very touristic city, small, beautiful, touristic city, but at the same time, it has a kind of conservative vocation it's as if granada would be so happy to be a secret place but it turns out it's not it's the opposite so we're stuck among the mountains and 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 the people here would dream to be always the same forever but that that it's actually impossible because the university is very important here and is full of uh, young bohemian partying people, which are the best part of the city, obviously. Um, so I would say that Granada works a little bit as Baudelaire, the French poet, said about uh, modernity. He said something like, I mean, I'm translating from French <laughs> into English via Spanish, so, so this will be a mess. Really. <laughs> but um, he said something like uh, modernity is that half whose another half is eternal. So, you know, like modern times are changing, but the other half are, are always the same. And that balance is what makes uh, modernity exciting rather than just, you know, moving on and forgetting everything um, uh, at your back. So, well, Granada is half eternal. Mm. You know, Alhambra has 1,000 years old and the city looks pretty much the same, the center as it looked centuries ago but at the same time you never know who's gonna be next year here it's full of people who stays for a couple of of nights and and it makes makes it exciting and and paradoxical plus we've got Lorca Federico mm. Garcia Lorca our favorite ghost here you know he was born here he was killed here so there's this relationship of, of pride and shame about his in colossal figure so i would say that to be a small place no more than three hundred thousand people a lot of things uh going on here mm, wow that sounds amazing i think i would love to, to head over to granada to um you'd be uh, very, very welcome here thank you all right i'll put that on my list um, <laughs> you're so close anyway you know it's just you know 100 hours plane <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> Um, let's go back a little bit. Let's start with your childhood because your parents, they were musicians, right? And you're born in Buenos Aires. And I want to ask you what brought your parents over to Argentina? Um, my parents were musicians, as you said, all our family, uh, in some point of, on the 20th century had arrived uh, but late 19th century, early 20th century had arrived to Argentina. They were all from abroad. That's something that struck me as every time more important 
mm. uh, as I get old to to realize that eight out of eight of my great grandparents were uh, from abroad and none of them spoke as a native tongue my native tongue yeah so this translating process inside the family mm. meant that sooner or later they descender descendants would uh, leave uh, and if you on top of that you had you know the unsteady political history of argentina yeah. full of uh, suffering uncertainty and coup d'etat it would it, it was only natural painfully natural that <laughs> that we had to leave um during my childhood i remember three or four attempts of coup d'etat plus i was born during a coup d'etat mm. and um part of my family exiled during the, the 70s during the what they call in English dirty war, although yeah. that's wrong because it, it wasn't a war, really. It was, you know, the, the, the state uh, kidnapping and torturing people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's true that there were a guerrilla going on, yeah. but it was state, state violence uh, um, more than anything. And part of my family exiled or were kidnapped, actually, but my parents stayed until... Um, the military men who had been uh, put in jail in in the late 80s were released in the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, the ones who had killed thousands of people. So when that happened, my parents felt not only in danger, but enraged, you know, uh, so they decided to leave the country for good. And my brother and me were like just children. So we had to cope with it and, and and learn how to live in another country continent and another kind of city because Buenos Aires is huge it's like you know Mexico City one of those cities which are planets actually and are the center of everything uh, regarding their countries and we moved to this small city with a provincial nice slow life so it was like learning uh, another language regarding the rhythm and the way of looking at things. And in the end, it turned out to be very enriching for us. But back then, it was really painful because we knew we would never come back. We sold the house, you know, we sold the toys. And my, I remember that my father told us, my brother and me told us, you have to choose three toys, only three toys. Yeah. And we're going to get rid of the rest or sell them or whatever or drop them. And uh, so... Suddenly, we had to make up an anthology of our childhood while being children yet. And, and it's interesting to remember and not so fun to, to live. <laughs> yeah. In one of your books, it's not translated, I think. Was it your oh, yeah. first book that you talk about that quite a lot? Uh, yeah, it's it's the third novel, which is coming out soon in English. And you're yeah. right, it's never been translated before in English. It's called, in Spanish at least, Una Vez Argentina, roughly once Argentina. Not once in Argentina, but yeah. like, you know, half a phrase, once Argentina, and then you don't go on and you, yeah. you, you leave it to the reader's imagination. And um, indeed, yes, yes, it, it's, it's, it's the story of 
of our ancestors and uh, our childhood in Buenos Aires. And then, you know, as my, my parents were musicians, they got a job, you know, uh, they searched for a job in, in, in orchestras and everything. Yeah. And, and, and this, this uh, job was available in Granada's orchestra. Yeah. So, so they decided to, to test their luck to, to see how it went, you know, like more than 30 years ago. And then even though I left Granada now and then and lived for, for a short periods time in different countries, I always uh, come back to Granada. You know, Lorca said Granada doesn't know how to uh, leave home. And in a way that turned out to be true for me. It's, it's my main camp, Granada. Uh, and in it's half more than half of my life has has been here and now you know I've got a, a child who's born here so I suppose that's that's a strong root yeah very interesting okay I stumbled across Traveler of the Century years ago and I loved it it's a huge historical novel ostensibly it's about a traveler and he ends up in this mysterious fictional city and the book's got everything it's got a massive cast of characters the writing is really poetic. There's uh, sex and murder and philosophy. For those people who haven't read it, could you tell us a little bit more about it? I think you've summarized it pretty well. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I would say beyond the plot, um, one could say that it's a novel about the relationship between love and translation, love as a form of translation and translation as a way of love, um, how, you know, desiring another voice or trying to interpret and, 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 you know, misinterpreting the voices we love are things in common uh, about the two, two things, you know, loving and translating. And, and I've been always uh, obsessed with this idea that lost in translation can lead to love in translation because what we don't fully get the gaps in, in, in the other people's speeches or just our limitations to properly understand what the others are saying, not to mention you know, linguistic, cultural, gender, uh, um, generation uh, gaps are part of our view of the world. I mean, it is impossible to see the world without different layers of glasses so to speak it's not mm -hmm. that we try to break them but but we we just learn how to cope with them and are being aware of them and that that has a lot to do about uh, translating uh, uh, speaking the foreign language and of course about loving someone and having to negotiate mm -hmm. the meaning of things and it's, uh, it's as well a kind of tribute to the 19th century novel uh, in, a, in a, you know, in Spanish language, there was a time in the beginning of this century and millennium that it was too much in the fashion, I, I would say, to dismiss the well-crafted narrative and, you know, the, the building of the characters. I'm totally aware that we're not in the 19th century. I actually started writing as a um, um, supposed avant-gardist poets, so so I'm fully aware of of, of that present needs uh, 
new tools to write, but I was feeling a kind of arrogance toward the masters uh, and everything that sounded like a, a, char a character in depth or a proper work with, uh, you know, time frame sounded like dated. So mm. I was annoyed by that, but I knew at the same time that there was no point in repeating, you know, old patterns because they are already made and much better than we can do. So I tried to do like, you know, like a modern or, or more audiovisual reinterpretation of the 19th century pattern. So, for, for instance, I, I was interested in working the dialogues as a radio program or a podcast, mm -hmm. meaning that the characters don't speak one by one, you know, in tidy order as they did in the old 19th century novels, you know, three or four pages of someone telling a story and the other miraculously uh, listening, but much on the contrary, everybody trying to speak at the same time and interrupting each other. So I tried to convey that and to work with the images, uh, with, you know, the surrealistic prose and, and video clips in mind. So it's a kind of experiment of how we can, you know, to make a tribute to the old solid 19th century novels with an awareness of everything that happened from the 20th century on. One of the things that I found really enjoyable was this book was it's it's kind of strange sense of time and geography because your yeah. this place where it's set seems to move around like uh, and you don't know where the edge of the city is and and this traveler seems to be uh, stuck there for a number of reasons but that whole aspect of 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 the shifting geography of the city was just right. something that was so creative and so well done. <laughs> Thank you. I was a bit scared of that because some other things I I thought it was interesting to attempt was to to make a kind of zapping through the 19th century possibilities, which mm -hmm. included the, the fantastic literature, the gothic, you know, the murder story, of course, the epistolar, epistolar love stories. Uh, Etc. And one of those things were, you know, the, the travels and and in space and time, which which pretty much began as a tradition uh, in the 19th century. Even though there are a few um, uh, earlier um, evidences of that in history. Um, so of of course, I mean, in the 19th century, you know, you got the boats and the steam engines and everything meaning that for the very first time, humankind could be faster than nature. And I don't think we're fully aware of the impact that must have had equivalent to the internet and the digital revolution, you know, being faster than nature for so many thousands of years, that was like the limit. And suddenly you can think in a different frame regarding time and space. So I try to, you know, translate that um, inventing a city which kind of is lost in the German map. I chose Germany because another layer of the novel is a sort of uh, reflection on meditation on the European Union, you know, what 
borders are, what alliances between countries are for, make, do they make sense? Are they possible? You know, so of course, Germany has been the heart of the best and the worst of European culture. Uh, you know, best philosopher, best classical music, most exquisite, exquisite poetry, and the most horrible genocides, imperialism, and nationalisms ever. So I was interested on in this capacity of Germany to summarize the worst and the best of, of, of humankind, of human culture. Um, and it was funny to me, you know, to, to toy a bit with the idea of... Um, entering a bit one of my favorite books, I suppose we're going to talk about that later, it's The Invisible Cities of Italo Calvino, mm. you know, this catalog of imaginary impossible poetical cities made of a mixture of um, urbanism and fantasy, and Vandenberg, the city where travel of the century takes place, is a bit one of them, you know, a city where the, the people who were born there can orientate in, but at the same time, the foreigners kind of feel that the streets move and, and you know, the cafes and all the places, you know, change, change directions as a metaphor of people who never feel at home in, in certain places, you know. So Vandenberg, which means literally in German, uh, kind of uh, wandering city, is the city where foreigners get lost forever and, mm. and the plot is very much on that too you know the protagonist arrives there and spends a year cannot leave but cannot orientate either one of the things that when i read this book uh the first time i think that the the idea of the the huge weight of the 20th century i think it, it sits over this book um, in, in a really interesting way because it's obviously not set in the 20th century, but the, the weight of all of those events and the, that idea that those things are coming towards this place, I think, is, is really beautifully kind of overlaid in this book. Wow, thank you. I mean, I wish that was true. Uh, to be honest, when I was writing the book, I thought it was like a crazy book that no one would read. Yeah. And it was, and still is, my longest book. It's like 500 pages. And for me, at least, that was a huge uh, length because, as I said earlier, I sort of come from, from you know, poetry and short stories when, when I started writing like, I don't know, 30 years ago. And I, f I felt more like a poet and a, a short storyteller more than a novelist. And so when I learned how to be a novel, when I never learned how to be a, novel a novelist, but when I started writing novels, 500 pages looked like impossible to me. And this heavily novelistic structure felt like something that I couldn't really... Um, reach so while i was writing i was full of intentions but at the same time full of fear and every time that someone says that book work works i'd still not entirely believe it because <laughs> because i think that it's kind of a crazy book really well okay no i think i think it really works well for me i think it's just something that uh 
when I, I picked it up without have, ever having heard your name before. And it was something that I really deeply enjoyed. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you very much. Everything is imaginary, isn't it? Because some, something funny is that my name appears to be German, right? Yeah. And that's why you will tend to say Neumann, because if yeah. I were German, that, that's how you would pronounce my name, Neumann, which means new man, of course, in the English is the same. Mm -hmm. But funnily enough, my, you know, my grand, great, oh, let me think, my great grandfather changed his name to save his life. He was Jewish. And his name was something like Hasatsky, yeah. more or less. And, and he was, you know, in the Polish lands conquered by the Germans and then by the Russians. Mm -hmm. And he was poor and Jewish, meaning he would be killed easily. And instead of doing the military service in Siberia, which was equal to death, you know, just imagine spending three years in Siberia, uh, 130 years ago. Uh, nobody came back, really. It was like killing Jewish people in a discreet way. So mm -hmm. he ran away. He stole a German soldier's passport. And he had a family, a perfect imaginary family, yeah. turning actually to be a new man. Yeah. So, so the funny thing is that when I wrote this novel, I had very much fun with the idea that everybody thinking that since I have German roots, which I don't have. Mm -hmm. uh, I was an expert in German culture and German language, not at all. So I invented a German city yeah. just to be in line with my invented German name, <laughs> which is a very funny and uh, in, a, in a way Argentinian thing to do. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's, that's really cool. I, I like, I really love that idea. <laughs> and, and well, part of this, you know, is told in this novel, once in once Argentina, and I can't wait for it to be out because, you know, <laughs> my grandmother, my grandparents, my mom, my dad, they are all there. Mm. And it's been so, you know, moving to see them speak in English. I was revising the other day the translation yeah. and I was saying, wow, I just can't believe that these people who spoke, for instance, Yiddish yeah. or Lithuanian mm. or or French, uh, you know, arrived to Argentina, they learned to speak Spanish. And then, you know, a century later, they be begin to speak English, thanks to translation. So it's a bit as if they were back to life. That's amazing. It, it does strike me when I read Travel of the Century. Um, and my background is, is, you know, is, is Jewish on, on my dad's side as well. Um, it's one of the things that's, that struck me that I think there's a, there's a certain Jewish storytelling that I think yep. that you've inherited. And I think that really does run through all of your books, I would say. Definitely. I think so, because half of my family was Jewish, yeah. not my mom. So from an Orthodox point of view, I couldn't be a Jewish. But yeah. from the cultural uh, side and family memory, definitely I am influenced by the Jewish culture mm. because all my parental, my, my father, the, the, my how do you say father side paternal yeah, father side, side yeah. paternal, yeah, paternal side, yeah. okay yeah so they were all jewish until they arrived uh, to argentina i mean all of them mm -hmm. and my my grandmother dorita kovensky such a jewish name too um even learned yiddish from her parents and she did translate a few books 
from the Yiddish, like Isaac Peretz, etc. I didn't know this for so many years because she forgot, you know, the women of that generation tended, you know, to live for the man, you know, and don't give credit to their own talents and possibilities. That's the tragedy of of so many generations of of women. Uh, And and I never knew my, my grandma was a translator on her 20s until, you know, a few years ago. And I'm sure that the way she told me stories and the way that even my father, who learned a bit of Yiddish to, you know, approach to narrative and to, you know, daily life observation must have been influenced by the Jewish tradition. Plus, of course, from my mom's side, it was full of, you know, Spanish, Italian and French people. So it's a kind of strange mixer, strange mm. salad, which in fact is pretty common in Argentina the same way it is in the States for instance and I understand that Australia is very mixed too yeah it is very mixed and I think it's mixed in uh in a really different way I don't think it's in a way I feel like it's uh it's not as naturally mixed but people seem to to just uh mix casually here and but it is very interesting because of especially the post-war migration here and then also the um, you know, after Vietnam and things like that, we've had a lot of um, Asian migration from from places like that. And yeah, so it's, it's a very... I remember the museum you have in Melbourne. I, I was fascinated by it. I mean, you know, all the mixtures, all the yeah. atrocities, all mm. the, I mean, the tensions and conflicts and wonders of, you know, uh, mixing different people. Um, but, but, but I think that that's much more interesting that those, I mean, the, the entire planet has been mixed of course in the long uh long run but but um i find more interesting the countries with an unsteady tradition you know mm. full of immigrations and emigrations i can relate more with that kind of identity rather than you know when when i read for instance and i do love them right but uh, i i feel very strange when i when i hear speaking this for instance american novelists who have been always in the same town and they yeah. only write about that town and they to- tell the stories about their their families in that town even though america is i mean is based in immigration for god's sake but i mean this deeply local um delving uh which can be fascinating of course and it's an important part of of, of history and I say, God, I cannot just look back more than, you know, a few decades without some disaster in, in somewhere yeah. which made my family run away mm-hmm. or, or change not only place, but language. So, so to me, it's like alien uh, to hear about people staying in the same place, you know, for centuries. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, it, maybe that, that, that feels great, but I think that doesn't belong to my tradition, really. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it belongs to mine either. So I can probably <laughs> see see that whole uh, idea. But let's move on to your most recent book um, in English. Anyway, have you written anything in Spanish bef- since Fracture? Oh, um, yes, it's been published a small book called Anatomia Sensible, roughly sensitive anatomy, which okay. is a kind of an, non-fiction 
narrative poetical book on the body. Okay. Um, it's kind of redefinition of how to look at the body in Photoshop times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm hating more and more Photoshop. Like it's a, it's like a, a, a cultural problem, I would say, not as a tool, but as a uh, aesthetical logic. Mm-hmm. So it's a book against Photoshop and to celebrate imperfections of human body. And that should come out in English sometime because open letter uh, booked, you know, Una Vez Argentina, Once yeah. Argentina, and Anatomia Sensible, Sensitive Anatomy. I'm not sure in what order they will publish them, but yeah. they should be out, you know, within the next uh, couple of years. Wow. Who's and that's your... lasting. And who's, who's translating your books? Normally, they are translated by a, a, by a couple of translators who are, I mean, they, they, they work as a team. Uh, Nick Kester mm-hmm. and Lorenza Garcia, yeah. who are two British brilliant translators who have translated almost all of my books, except for one travel book, who, which came out only in America, titled How to Travel Without Seeing, Dispatches yeah. from the New Latin America. Um, uh, that 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 was translated by Jeffrey Lawrence, but in, uh, except for that book, Nick and Lorenza have translated all of my books. Uh, and now I'm working also with a wonderful young translator that I, uh, who I think is bril- is brilliant. She's Robin Myers. She's a young American poet living in Mexico. She's a poet that I like very much and. And she ended up being uh, one of my translators too. She will translate uh, poems and uh, and some other short books. So, and I enjoy so much, you know, me being a translator too, not a professional one. Um, and I know I am not one, but I, from time to time, translate something, particularly poetry. And to me, it's a privilege and so much fun to to see how a text becomes another text. That to me is just magic. I was talking to a translator earlier uh, in this month, um, Max Lawton, and he's he translates from from Russian mainly, but also from French and other languages. And he was saying that that some of the art of translation is not just uh, in translating the actual text, but uh, really doing almost a cover version of the book in another language, because you know there there are things that don't translate and some things that aren't uh, can't be done literally and. So he said that part of the part of the I guess the fun and the joy of it is to is to do something that is a little bit different from the original and yeah exactly that's why I love so much translating poetry. Many people mm. think that translating poetry is impossible. Well, precisely because it's impossible, because translating is impossible. Uh, uh, translating is impossible, and that impossibility uh, ha- has to do with you know our cultural limits. So to me, the healthy thing about translating poetry is that you have to drop the fantasy and the uh, lie, uh, the deceive about literal translation as if that were possible, you know, this fantasy of transparency, you know, of not having this layer of layers of glasses to look at reality, you know, just to transport purely one thing to another place and leaving it intact. 
that is such a naive approach to reality, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, you do uh, find some people who still think about literal translation, but when it comes to poetry, you just can't yeah. because it's so full of, you know, formal uh, issues, yeah. structure, yes, rhythm, uh, sounds. So, you know, you have to rewrite the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And and in a smaller scale, that too, that also happens with prose. Um, and I totally trust translators when, when, when they are good. Of course, a bad translator can ruin uh, an original, but let's face it, if you are a bad translator in, and you attempt to do a literal translation, you will, you will ruin, ruin it anyway. But if you're a good translator, I like to give you freedom, you know, and feel the book is yours too. Because, you know, actually the prose you're reading is a translator's prose. So it's a kind of an encounter. It's a meeting between two voices, two frames, very often two genders, two uh, ages. And all of that not only creates problems, but also adds layers of meaning and, you know, small epiphanies to the text. So I will I would say that when a translation is bad, book is dead, but when a translation is good, the book can be easily better than the original. And I know this is a kind of uh, you know uh, how to say herejía, uh, blasphemy, okay. blasphemy, blasphemy to say, but I think that the book properly rewritten will be always better than the previous version. So let's put it this way. A translation is a second original or a new original based on an earlier original rather than, you know, just a pale echo from the original. If you, if you translate with, from, with that point, with, with that starting point, your, you know, your writing will be weak. You must feel you're writing a new original, only that you must look at closely a previous text. All right, let's talk about Fracture. So that's your uh, most recent novel in English. Um, And it's a book that follows a Japanese businessman. He survives the atomic bombing, and then he ends up in Fukushima when the tsunami hits in 2011. The book's got like an epic sweep, and it's told by the women that he, you know, meets along the way and uh, runs across, you know, Europe and America and, uh, and Japan. What inspired you to write about Mr. Watanabe? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I've been always obsessed with you know Japanese culture, not because I'm a, I'm an expert, which I'm not at all. Um, but since I was a child, you know the, the the movies, the mangas, then later on the poetry, the films, I've always felt that distant places hide something that belongs to us you know the not always which is closer to you belongs more to you um and that's why we travel we read we translate we are we are curious and and that's why even after you know so many decades of globalization and you know and repeating that you know that mcdonald's will you know uh (laughs) demolish local identities, blah, blah. The truth is that there are no two airports uh, that are exactly the same. Well, you know, 
yeah, maybe Berlin and Paris are not that di different, but just just try to go to Asunción del Paraguay's airport or go to Bolivia uh, and then go to South Spain and then go to, you know, Melbourne's airport and you will certainly find cultural differences even in those supposedly neutral places. So I've always been interested in the, uh, you know, the nuances and differences uh, among things that are supposed to be the same and complementary in all the things that have to do with ourselves and appear to be distant or remote or ununderstandable. Um, on top of that, I um, fell in love with Kintsugi, both as an, you know, a craft, uh, um, a craft art, um, you know, this, this uh, art of ancient Japanese art of, uh, reparation that will take a broken uh, piece of something, you know, a bowel, a cup or whatever. And when they are broken, they repair it with, a, um, how to say this, gold powder um, so that the cracks instead, instead of concealed are celebrated. And this is a metaphor of the value of survival when an object survives damage, gets more valuable and costs more money in the Japanese uh, art market, which I found fascinating. So a new object, a brand new object, meaning a capitalist object is less valuable than an object, an old object that endured, you know, hard times and survived. And I thought it was wonderful to apply this concept of wounded beauty and the value of survival and the importance of not forgetting our cracks, applying all this to people and social conflicts. And that led me to write Fractura, plus the, you know, the anecdote, the final anecdote that put me writing was the Fukushima accident. I was living in Paris back then because I was working for the university, for La Sorbonne, and that was, you know, March 11 of 2011. And I was quite, uh, how to say this, um, sensitive or sensible that day because it was the anniversary of the Atocha attacks in Madrid, you know, the, At the Atocha bombings. Yeah, the train session, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The trains attacked, which were in, in, in March 11. It's like our 9-11 mm. date, right? And I was very struck by the fact that this accident happened the very same date. It's as well the, the anniversary for one of the worst Chilean earthquakes ever. And I've got many Chilean friends who, who suffered that earthquake, etc. So it was like an important, meaningful date. And suddenly, you know, I was watching on YouTube these horrible uh, nuclear... Um, God, how to say this, uh, uh, cloud, this mm -hmm. nuclear cloud. And um, suddenly I said, wait a minute, I am an Argentinian person educated in Spain who is currently living in France watching a Japanese accident. So where am I? <laughs> where, 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 where are we all? when watching the news and where are the borders really? 
because one could argue, well, that was just Japan. Well, no, because they're dropping all that that horrible uh, garbage, uh, radioactive uh, garbage to the sea, and and that will certainly and has already affected, uh, uh, you know, fishes and 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 the you know balance of the whole sea. And the same way that Chernobyl didn't happen just in one city or one country, uh, it affected many countries and it could have potentially destroyed the whole European continental continent. Um, so, I mean, the, the most important things, just take the, you know, the coronavirus. Mm. Remember when it was a Chinese I mean, according to Trump, this is still, you know, a Chinese thing. But I mean, if you are serious, if we are serious, we thought it was a Chinese thing, then it was an Italian thing, then it turned out to be a Spanish thing. And, you know, a few weeks later, it, it was the planet's problem. Well, everything that matter, that matters happens everywhere. And then I remember this quote from, from Miwosh, the, the Polish-American poet, who said, if something exist somewhere no if something happens somewhere it will exist everywhere mm -hmm. and i thought well this concentric concentric cycles is the structure of humankind you know the same same applies for earthquakes for for ra radi radioactive zones for you know news for viral uh, things in the social networks, for love songs, for capitalism, you mentioned it, everything, you know, uh, grows as an expanding wave. And once I realized that, and I read that the planet's axe had been shifted by a few centimeters after this Japanese earthquake, I said, I, I think I've got it. No, I, 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 I saw this character who travels everywhere, because he's working for audiovisual company mm -hmm. and has, you know, to, to change office from time to time. And he's a kind of a worldwide citizen with no roots, but at the same time committed with different languages and, and political frames who doesn't belong to, to, to one place and becomes like a collective character in a way. That's Mr. Watanabe. Mm. He's such a good character. And the book is it's kind of beautiful and tender and and his character in the book is so it's so soft and giving um i just think he's he's such a brilliant creation well thank you i you know i love him i love him very much but not because i mean uh you develop a certain emotional link mm -hmm. with the characters even though the book you're writing is a mess and it can be also a bad book uh, but even even in that case, you you, <laughs> you get to love the characters, even even the, the, the you know the, the the evil characters, because I think this alchemy of getting to love someone you know, which works both in life and in fiction, and I would say that fiction is a lab for life. We see more clearly things of life in fiction. If, if you don't get to love someone you know, then something is missing. And if you don't get to love the character you're writing and you don't, don't feel a deep bond with that character, even though it's a very different 
to your life, then something is not working. And 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 I feel that at the same time, Mr. Watanabe is, yeah, as you said, soft and giving, but at the same time, he has this big trauma and this silence uh, that you know, builds a wall between him and the people he loves. In his case, you know, is the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings and the echo after the Fukushima accident that bring back so many memories. So so the novel uh, begins to focus as well on these four women, one French, one American, one um, Argentinian and one Spanish, which are the four countries where Mr. Watanabe works uh, throughout his professional career. And these four women uh, tell the stories of, of how they learn to talk to and translate love and hate Mr. Watanabe. And so, so um, I, I grew very accustomed to, to, um, to think about him through her voices. And I found this interesting too, right? Because, you know, all the patriarchy consisted basically in either neglecting female characters, turning them secondary characters, or always, you know, women told by men or, you know, observed by men. And even though, of course, I am a man, I've been educated as a man, um, I thought it was interesting inside the book's fiction to do the, the, the opposite, which is a male protagonist who has not, ma- not much to say or doesn't say much mm. uh, about the story. And then you need this for women to know what happened. They have the word, they have a version about him. So they are toying with him in a way. He's trapped, mingled in her versions and it's a kind of a gender revenge in a way to right? Like, please, Mr. Watanabe, can you shut up because we are talking. <laughs> and then, and I found it very funny and philosophically interesting too, because you know that this tradition of Zen Buddhism that say more or less that the center is empty. You know, in our Western uh, tradition, the center is full too crowded, right? The center of the cities, of the center of the conflicts or whatever. You th- we think that the center is where everything is happening and is a condensed version of the periphery. And that's very much a political view too, right? I mean, imperialism uh, has to do with that design, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, whereas if you think that the center is empty, that's so welcoming because the center is available for anyone from the periphery who wants to occupy it. And sometimes the center can be the reflection of the periphery. And, and I thought, well, since, you know, when there's this, when there's an accident, a, a nuclear accident like Chernobyl or Fukushima, you have to leave the center empty because it's too dangerous. So everybody leaves and the center, the epicenter is, uh, is empty. I thought, well, maybe, I could try to build a structure, a narrative structure that does the same. The center who is supposed to be Mr. Watanabe and his secrets and silences are, you know, empty. He doesn't have uh, much to say about it. And there's a silence about, about it. 
and you need to go somewhere else to know what happened in the in the epicenter of of his story it's interesting as well because he's always the foreigner in the book and he does it he does do it very well he he is a very good foreigner but he's always <laughs> out of his comfort zone he's you know like there's no section like i guess there is a section in japan but essentially the the four main sections he's he's somewhere else and he's having to be translated he's having to work out how to how to live in a new place exactly i love the way you put it he's a very good foreigner uh he's mr foreigner mm -hmm. and and you know again this is a very anglo-saxon anglo-saxon uh, way of seeing things when they say well but if you're not japanese you know how would you dare you know to write about japan leave that to japanese people that's a very narrow-minded way of seeing things because the thing is i'm not talking about pure japanese people mm. i'm talking about the borders between foreigners and japan uh, about the experience of traveling and feeling a foreigner uh, and you definitely need to be a foreigner or a migrating person to be interested in that it's mm. not like a wrote you know a novel about samurais who have been you know in japan for for centuries and you know and they have the tea ritual and they are perfectly japanese not much on the contrary mr watanabe is a japanese who almost forgotten what to be a japanese is so i was again searching for translation metaphors of translation and i picked japan because the same way as germany is you know the epicenter of the worst and the best as we said before uh for europe japan has i mean japanese history has this pulsion of self-destruction on the one hand right like i mean they kept on fighting after the nazis surrender that's incredible we tend to forget that when the bombs were dropped germany had already surrendered so they weren't dropped to win the war at all at all the war was already won uh it was just japan against the world so and and, and you know the emperor uh, preferred for all of their people to be killed before uh, surrendering and so this self-destruction destructive pulsion happens at the same time in uh, parallel with this incredible ability to reconstruct them, their, their, reconstruct uh, themselves that the Japanese have, you know, like in a few years, they grew incredibly fast. They rebuilt their economy, and I and I thought, well, that's you know, that's what humans, we humans do, right? We try to kill ourselves, and at the same time, hold on and resist and try to to exercise in resilience. So I, I found the Japanese case in the, in the post-war very symbolic. Plus, of course, and this is very important, if you're Argentinian, Japan is the furthest you can get, is the antipode. And I was very interested in saying, well, what can be the points in common between Argentina or even Spain, very remote countries from Japan? Is there something in common? What happens if Japanese people meet Argentine people? 
they will understand each other. They will be kind of love in translation. Well, that's why I, I try to, to write this story. Let's take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Andras Neumann. This week's episode is brought to you by the new children's book, Where's Peng Shui? Available now at all good book retailers. Let's move on to your gateway books. Were there some books for you that opened up the world of literature and took you down this path of, of writing and poetry? Yeah, certainly. Um, well, uh, half of the answer is very predictable for, for an English reader, which is um, Edgar Allan Poe's stories. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing about it, I mean, I will not say anything about that because any English reader will have to say more than me about how does it feel, you know, to start reading Edgar Allan Poe's stories or poems. Um, but the, the new thing I can bring to the table about Edgar Allan Poe as a foreigner is that, of course, I was a child and I read them translated. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but in Spanish, who trans- the person who translated Edgar Allan Poe's stories was Julio Cortázar. Oh, wow. Okay. The great storyteller. Yeah. So I read Poe through Cortázar. <laughs> and the funny thing was, I didn't know who Cortázar was. I was like 10 or 11. And funnily enough, I discovered Poe before Julio Cortázar, who is the great storyteller of my own country. Yeah. So I said, oh, this Julio Cortázar, that sounds like a cool name, Julio Cortázar. Mm-hmm. I like the sound of it, you know. We didn't have internet or telephones, you know, to, and I felt too lazy to say, hey, um, father, mother, who Julio Cortázar is. I didn't care, but I kept the name. And then a few months later, I found a book by Cortázar. And I said, wait a minute, this, isn't this the same guy? that translated Edgar Allan Poe, did he write stories too? What a weird thing to discover. And then, you know, the next year I read one of Kafka's novels. Well, uh, you know, The Metamorphosis, mm-hmm. which is not really a novel, I know, short novel or a long story. And it was translated by the guy called Julio, Jorge Luis Borges. Oh, really? Borges translated <laughs> Kafka, <laughs> Kafka's Metamorphosis from the German. So then, of course, everybody told me, well, Borges might be the best Argentinian writer in 20th century. And, you know, I spent a couple of years thinking that all of the writers had translated each other. Mm. And I found very weird to, to, to discover that that wasn't the case. But in a way, I still think that all the people who read and write books translate each other actually. And then I found um, Silvina Ocampo and her uh, mm-hmm. sister, Victoria Ocampo. And then I, you know, I found out that that group, Bioy Casares, Borges, etc., of men were much more than just a bunch of men. And, and this discovery was very important for me. And then I also lastly found a small book of poems by Oliverio Girondo, who I understand was translated precisely by Open Letter not long ago. Um, and he's a very uh, like important poet 
from Argentina. One of his books, not the one that published uh, Open Letter, uh, En la Mas Medula, is a book with invented words, you know, with neologisms, like a post-avant-garde thing. Mm. I think it's a book from the 50s or the 60s, I'm not sure. And, and I read that book and it blew my mind because even though it's a naive thing to do if you're 30 years old, when you are a kid, the idea of making poetry with invented words, with a new grammar, really opens your, your mind and expands your horizon. So I would say that all those names, most of them Argentinian authors, really opened the gates of literature for me. Well, <laughs> what a good answer. I think, it, wouldn't it be interesting if now an English translator went back and translated Poe by Cortessa? That would be very oh, that interesting. Would be, it would be, you know, it, it's like a Georges Perec idea, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, that's what you you Lipo would do. I mean, yeah. and just compare the result of the double translation mm. and and the original. And of course, we would find out that if the translator are good, maybe the final result is more interesting than the the original Edgar Allan Poe stories. But let's not forget that anything of this would be possible without the original. That's true. That's true. Well, that's an interesting concept. Any translators out there? I think, uh, yeah, Jorge's and Cortesa are waiting for you to translate those books. Yeah. You know what happens mm. about that translation? I mean, as, as you know, you need to translate any classic to mm. every single language at least twice a century. I mean, yeah. no matter how good the translation is, I mean, you pick Shakespeare translating Cervantes or whatever. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, 15, 50 or 100 years later, they will sound old fashioned because mm -hmm. you need, you know, to update just like the records, the albums, you mm -hmm. need, you know, remixing or remastering. Yeah. So the thing with that translation in particular is that it's become so symbolic of good translation and so many generation generations of spanish speaking readers have initiated themselves into edgar Allan poe with cortazar translation that mm. no one dares to retranslate it and that <laughs> that's become a problem because they, they this was translated in the 40s yeah not only by cortazar by the way by his by his wife too and mm -hmm. it's time to it's time to say it. Aurora Bernardes was a wonderful uh, translator and secret writer too. She translated Calvino from Italian into mm. Spanish and helped Cortázar a lot because the two of them were professional translators. And these translations were made by the two of them in the 40s. That means that it's 80 years old now, mm. but it's like a block. Nobody there's to do it because we know that there will be a comparison so i wonder when a brave you know victim will carry the weight you know take the cross and say okay i will retranslate this and now shoot me <laughs> because i am not cortazar <laughs> okay let's move on to the books you're currently reading or you've recently enjoyed or are looking forward to yeah I will, I, I'm, I'm uh, currently reading Las Malas by Camila Sosa, which has, I think, 
come, come out in English. It's this trans writer, Argentinian trans writer. I don't know what's the title. So mm -hmm. English, I've got her Wikipedia. So I'm going to tell you right now, the bad ones. Oh, well, bad I don't ones. know. Oh, but maybe, you know, maybe they made up the translation and and, yeah. and, and it's still Las Malas because it makes sense. Well, I don't know, but should be. Las Malas, I think, is better than the bad ones, but who knows? Yeah. So I, I'm reading that one now, and I'm I'm enjoying it very much. I'm reading two small novels by Annie Ernaud, the yeah. French writer. Mm. In English, I suppose should be the years and yeah, the years is right. The yeah. other the other daughter, maybe. L'autre okay. fille uh, in in Spanish is la otra hija. Mm -hmm. I just read two novels from Latin American, young Latin American writers, Yossi Abilio and Paulina Flores. Yossi Abilio is uh, Argentinian and Paulina yeah. Flores is Chilean. Mm -hmm. Yossi's book is uh, Petit Fleur. The title is in French because it's yeah. a song, you know, Petit Fleur, mm -hmm. like the song. And I'm not sure if it's, it's translated into English. It should be because and other stories has published a few of his books. Okay. And Paulina Flores' novel is Isla Decepción, Deception, I mean, Disappointment Island, so, yeah. so to speak. And, and she wrote a book of stories too, which was definitely translated into English, Que Vergüenza, What a Shame, a few years ago. And then I read, I discovered, I mean, in English must be very well known, I guess, but in Spanish it's not. A wonderful um, poet, um from Nigeria, I think Logan February. Okay. Um he writes in Spanish. Yeah. And he, he he's a non non-binary uh poet and he has he's extremely young, like 20 mm. something, 22, 23, not more than that. He has a massive talent. Yeah. Uh far beyond you know all the gender identity which is of course interesting but what i mean is he's a hell of a poet um or, or we should say they are a hell of a poet <laughs> and uh and um there, there was a little book uh, by by logan february that came out in spanish the title is fuck boys right. i'm not sure i'm not sure if it's exactly the same i'm sure title. It would be. yeah i, think I mean there, there's a poem called like that i don't know if the book is called like that yeah. but i i found in you know i found them <laughs> like um the equivalent you know to to rainbow in our yeah. age i'm not yeah. saying okay. logan february is as good as rainbow because yeah. no one can be as good as rainbow yeah. uh, including me of course but uh what i'm saying is i think that if rainbow was alive now yeah. That is what he would be doing, you know, that kind of thing. And I think he's, he's an absolute outstanding poet. And yeah. I'm very, very happy to have read, read Logan February. And I'm reading many contemporary young poets in Spanish language, all of them, I'm afraid, untranslated. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to them. Uh, this Christmas, you know, I'm looking forward to reading Lydia Davis' collected stories in, yeah. in English, mm -hmm. which I booked in, in one of my trips. Um, I don't know if FSG, maybe I don't know. Yeah, someone right. published you know this orange, mm, I think it's uh, FSG, thick yeah. volume, which is yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 it's there, just waiting for my mm -hmm. Christmas to to begin. And um, and I want to reread in Cold Blood, 
yeah. because I watched the Capote tapes the other day, the oh, documentary, okay. yeah. and that, that gave me, you know, the desire because I was too young when I read the In Cold Blood, and I don't mm. know if I understood or appreciated uh, uh, um, as it deserved. So I'm I'm planning to reread it. Let's take a quick break here on Beyond Zero. We're speaking with Andras Neumann. This episode is brought to you by Thomas Hardy's Tess of the Dobervilles, as read by Kendrick Lamar. Tess of the Dobervilles, a poor woman, faithfully presented by Thomas Hardy. On an evening in the latter part of May, a middle-aged man was walking homeward from Shaston to the village of Marlat in the adjoining Vale of Blakewall, Blakewall. Get it now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time to hear Andres's top 10. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, that's the last torture, right? Because just picking <laughs> only 10 books, it's, you're, making, you're making me choose among my <laughs> fingers. It's, it's as if you say, Look at your 20 fingers of, you know, of feet and hands. Yeah. You have to get rid of half of it. <laughs> That's horrible. So I think I'm going to mention, if you allow me, more than 10, like, you know, a dozen or 15 or something. Perfect. I promise not more than 20 because I have 20, <laughs> 20 fingers only. But, uh, but I mean, I just made a list and I just couldn't cut it to, to 10. Oh, this. So without any order... Uh, or maybe with a subtle order, now I come to think about it. The Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino. I mentioned it earlier in the conversation, and, and I think that's a great book. Mm-hmm. Las Ciudades Invisibles in Spanish. Yeah. Uh, Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino. Mm-hmm. Then I mentioned Lorca, but instead of mentioning, you know, one of his uh, book, books of poems, which are all of them wonderful, of course, I would choose one of his theater works, hmm. his most avant-gardist and surrealist plays, which is El Público, the audience. Yeah. And that's an amazing, I mean, you read it and you can't believe it was written a century ago, really. Hmm. You need like multimedia effects to hmm. represent that. Um then any collection of Cesar Vallejo, the Peruvian poets, uh, for instance, Poemas Humanos, human poems, I guess, or just pick a collected poems by Cesar Vallejo. Yeah. As Peruvian as Jose Watanabe is, Jose Watanabe is mm-hmm. one of my favorite uh, Latin American poets, and I got his name for my, you know, my I character. picked his name for, yeah. for my character, Watanabe. Yeah. Because it sounds as well in English as wanna be, so it mm. was like a word game. But yes, uh, Cesar Vallejo and Jose Watanabe are my two top Peruvian poets. And then collected poems by Wisława uh, Zimborska, the Polish Nobel Prize, who died a few years ago. She was outstanding, one of my favorite poets ever. Intelligent, ironical, and yet tender. I mean, I don't know how she got to do so. Then, you know, I love Wallace Stevens, but I won't choose poems because they are too well-known, I guess, in, in English. So he had these aphorisms, adagia or adagia, I don't know how to pronounce in English. But, but I think 
you know, you can condense his poetical thought in this adagia. Then poems by Rilke, you know, the German poet, any of them really, but we could pick maybe the new poems. Mm -hmm. um, I think my life changed a bit when I read uh, Raina Maria Rilke. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this other German po po poetry book by Goethe. Not an obvious one, maybe, it's the Roman elegies, Elegias Romanas in Spanish. I enjoyed very much, in particular, that small book he wrote in love while living in, in Italy. And you can tell it's a book written in love. Uh, and although there are, there are so many poems and books by Goethe that one could admire, I think that the sexual tension he was experiencing when he wrote those poems made them very special. Then I love, you know, you, you know one of my favorite novels ever, and luckily I read it in English. It's Another Country by James Baldwin. Yeah. Who is, you know, like outstanding figure from the 20th century in, in any language. I, I'm glad now he's getting a bit, you know, the, the attention he deserved after a few decades of being forgotten yeah, outside, yeah. The, outside, outside the English language. Mm. I, I think I, I, it blew my mind, really, Another Country. What a beautiful, clever uh critical and at the same time uh em em empathic empathical novel uh then adriano's memoirs by Mar marguerite yursenar what a great book i mean one of the best books ever i mean you can you can write better than that i think yeah. uh, there are two more french classics l'étrangère by camus yeah. you know the stranger i guess in english mm -hmm. And La Femme Rompue, that is The Broken Woman, I guess, by Simone de Beauvoir. Yeah. Then there's an Argentina novel. The, the, it became famous thanks to the movie, the, the, uh, El Beso de la Mujer Araña, the, the, the Kiss of the Spider Woman by Manuel Puig. What a great book. Probably, you know, the best dialogues in the history of Argentinian literature you can find them there in that novel by Manuel Puig. Then, you know, Everything That Rises Must Converge by Flannery O'Connor. What can I say about that? You all know that, but it's still masterful. Then another book of short stories by an American writer, uh, uh, Birds of America by Laurie Moore. I, I really love that book and I reread re re it, re it a while ago and I loved it. Um, I remember how the impact that one of the Susan Sontag's classic had in, in my reading experience when I read Against the Interpretation, still one of my, my favorites. Um, and, and then it's not really a book, just an essay, but I love On Being Ill by Virginia Woolf. And I had to choose among all his, among, among all her great essays, I would pick On Being Ill. Another essay by Philippe Arrier, the French sociologist, is History of Death in Western World, uh, Historia de la Muerte en Occidente in Spanish. If, if you want to learn about how the different ages and, and cultures have coped with grief, death, and illness, that's the book, definitely. 
by Philippe Paré. And then two more books, uh, Grave of Fireflies by the Japanese Akiyuki Nosaka. It became famous because there was, I think, an animated movie, but the novel is one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. And lastly, the chess novel by Stefan Zweig, which is a rounded, small, perfect gem. It is. It's perfect, isn't it? That it is. And, and if you, book. yeah, and if you love chess as I do, it has this extra pleasure, right? Because you can get really obsessed and and insane if you think too much in chess, and you can see that. I mean, this is a history of chess and history of human obsession. When 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 you love too much something, you can get crazy, just like you know Don Quixote with books. <laughs> That's true. All right. We should wrap it up because my children are awake and noisy. I do understand that. Yeah. <laughs> so give you, I'm just going to close this door, but then we'll wrap it up. Give me one second. Oh, oh no, please leave that giggle. That giggle <laughs> from your children is the best part of the podcast. Please do leave that. So, I'm going, I'm going to, to see my baby who's yeah, crying. Yeah. And you leave me with this giggle and that's the perfect ending. The pleasure of reading. Perfect. Tears and laughter. <laughs> that's right. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thank you, Ben. And, and thank you for taking the time to, to read the books and, and do this podcast, which, I mean, it, it's, it, it's a kind of a small miracle to have the podcast depth in depth about books and, and the pleasure of our bookshelves, really. Thank you for doing it. Well, thank you for coming on. And I am so looking forward to reading your new books out, hopefully next year. Probably, yes, I hope so. And then we can maybe have a new conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. And hopefully I can get over to Granada at some point because I think that um, we can stroll to go to. Yes, we can stroll uh, along with Lorca's ghost, who's always here. Perfect. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks once again to Andres Newman. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back next week.